often ask students, you know, have you ever been to an exhibition and argued with it? <laughs> and they go, no, we just go to an exhibition and we sort of take it in and we absorb it. And I say, have you ever watched a documentary film and found yourself shouting at the TV? And they'll go, yes. And say, okay, well, what's the difference? Because exhibitions are in, in many ways like documentaries. They're taking objects that would never normally have been in the same place at the same time and bringing them together under the guise of a narrative and creating something cogent out of them. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I think from gigs. We shared a stage at the Arts Emergency Social. You've done gigs with people that I know. Right. And you know Martin and Helen Alstwick. That's right. And we've had lunch, tea, after yeah. the podcast meet-up in Brixton. So that way... Yeah. I mean, I think the first time I met you or was aware, became aware of you, I think you were doing something on stage at a geek show-off, I think. Right. About corsets, was it? Probably. <laughs> now you're testing me. But yeah, I saw you on stage and then I guess... Then, and, and then at different times you've seen me on stage. Yeah. But like neither of us... Well, I don't know about neither of us, but... You're not like you're not, your thing isn't being on stage. I guess my thing is being on stage. Yeah, I'm very definitely not a performer. Oh, I don't see myself as a performer. It's not that I don't like doing it. In terms of sort of gigging, I'm more of a producer because I produce museums show off. Yeah, right. And I, you know, I like occasionally getting up on stage and showing off a bit myself, but it's not my it's not my primary activity. Right. I still it still makes me nervous, which is strange. I've spent. 14, 15 years lecturing, I have no qualms about standing up in front of a bunch of students, but the relationship with the audience is completely different. To standing up in a sort of semi-comedy type gig right. is nerve-wracking yeah, for I me. Mean, <laughs> I, I definitely feel that way too. I mean, that's the thing, I'm not a comedian, and so mm. I always feel like, oh no, like, do I have to make people laugh? And actually, you don't have to make people laugh in, the, in those kind of gigs, because they you're allowed to sort of like be serious and funny yeah and that's that's a, this is a conversation I have very often with people who I've asked to do museums show off and they're like oh but I'm not funny and I'm like well it's it's actually not that it's about being interesting and maybe witty but it's very very informal and you can do anything you like but it's not get everyone rolling in the aisles laughing and in fact as it turns out museums people are really creative and very funny yeah it's you know, there's a whole range of hidden talents amongst the curators and conservators and security guards. I don't think we've ever had a really... I can't think that anyone has ever done something that's boring or, you know, been a, a, a full stop in a in an evening. Yeah, I mean, a part of that will be down to, to you as the producer, like, reaching out to people who are interesting, uh, I guess. Not entirely, because part of it... Well, certainly when we started... Half of the people I invited, but half of the acts were people who just signed up of their own accord. So I suppose it's a self-selecting, that's a self-selecting group. They're people who who are interested, who've maybe seen a gig and, and know what it's about and have something in that vein that they feel that they can do. I think in the last season, for a ver- variety of reasons, I've invited more of the acts. But 
I, you know, they're not necessarily people that I know. I've never seen them perform. They haven't performed in this way anyway. So it's still very hit and miss. Right. I think there are just some very talented people out there. Right, and it's exciting. I mean, I, I, book, I often book acts without knowing exactly what they're going to do. Even if I know, even if I know what they do, I don't know what they're going to do at Stand Up Tragedy. Mm. Um, and it's quite exciting to discover that yeah. in the night, even though it's kind of like you're, you're nervous about it beforehand, but it's actually, I, I like the, the unknown. I like getting up on stage and not knowing what's exactly yeah. going to happen next. Yeah, I've actually stopped feeling nervous about it because I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's going to be fine. And Museum Shelf is combed by Steve Cross, who is an right. excellent compare and can kind of handle mood changes and sort of different kinds of acts and make the evening go incredibly smoothly. Right, so, um, yeah. I've stopped being... <laughs> stop being nervous about it. Yeah, I think yeah. I'd, I'd, I'll definitely. I would stop being nervous if I wasn't mm. also the host. I think. Yeah. So yeah, I, I should say as well that in terms of background sound, we're recording at the Royal Festival Hall. Uh, it's not that much background sound actually compared to sometimes when I've been here. But just to give people some context, really, the second question that I ask everybody is, "What do you do now?" That is a really good question. I I guess I would say I wear multiple museum-related hats. And I, if I had a really snappy one-line answer or a, a, an elevator pitch, as apparently is the, the, the phrase, um, that would make my life a lot easier, but I don't yet. I'm working on it. So I, I run museums show-off, but that has sort of all kinds of additional parts, components to it. So a lot of work uh, with early career museums professionals and sort of advocacy for them. I'm a museums consultant. I'm trying to find a bit of a a different word for that. So I advise museums and other organisations about exhibition, production, but specifically sort of related to sort of a, a broader level, a sort of more strategic and vision level about how the exhibitions they produce relate to institutional identity which is a huge complex subject and taps into the third strand which is that I'm um, I have a background in academia that's something that I'm trying to um, pick up again so my PhD was research into why into exhibition production why it is that when you go to an exhibition you're seeing this subject presented in this way at this time so what's made this happen, go right back to even before the let's put on an exhibition moment, all of the institutional and broader political and social context that led to the exhibition production, that led to the way that the exhibition's framed, the language that's used to talk about it, which produces a document, which then has to be turned into something that's spatial and visual with a whole bunch of different people who are there for all kinds of different reasons. Why, how does that happen? And, and the implications of that are sort of numerous for, for the construction of knowledge in, in exhibitions and, how, and why it is we see what we see and what it is that we're told. Um, and the idea of, of museums as um, established sites of established knowledge. So there's that. So that was sort of past research, and I want to take that forward and thinking about and doing sort of experimental practice. So my background is in working is exhibition development for and with exhibition design companies and museums so actually putting together exhibitions and thinking about what's going to go in them and thinking about how they're going to be visualised and one of the things that tipped me into research was that there were lots of problems people would say well we want to do this but we can't we don't know how to and I just thought there's got to be a way around this which 
and what I realised having been freelance and worked with lots of different design companies is that each company and each museum has a process but no one actually really knows what the impact of that process is and all the processes are different um, so what happens if you step back and try to, to take an overview can you then find a way to get around all the barriers that people think there are to displaying things in, in new ways Right, and um, what kind of barriers are there? A lot of them are things like how to overcome a curatorial master narrative so how if you've got a, a subject that's controversial for some reason or where you know that there are multiple voices that you want to appear within the exhibition. How do you do that without saying, here is a story and person A thinks this and person B thinks that? How do you, uh, because that's, that's, you know, without having little box pops along the way, which have been obviously selected and curated by the author yeah. and they're still and they're, they're still sort of supporting this this overview this master narrative how do you how do you have those voices speaking for themselves and sometimes against each other right. and being transparent about the way that those voices have been selected it's a really difficult issue and within sort of museums literature there's a lot about co-creation and co-production they're difficult terms. It's di- it's very difficult to do. There's still questions about editorialization. Who chooses which voices you select? Right. So then there's other issues about how do you make that transparent within an exhibition? How do you say we've chosen these people to to speak for these reasons right. without it being very sort of text heavy and essentially reading a textbook? Right. So that's that's kind of difficult, and a lot of it's to do with display techniques. So that's what I was investigating. Yeah, and during the time you were answering that, there's some music has started. Yes, it has. It's quite nice. It makes it feel like (laughs) very French. Right, it now feels like we're in a French cafe. Yeah. uh, To the listeners, (laughs) although there are sort of screams in the in the distance that I feel I should explain as well, uh, because there's like a really big slide going down. um, It's the Carsten Holler exhibition at Hayward Gallery. Yeah. And uh, so there's like a slide that kids are going down. So we're not, we're not in a swimming pool, we're not in a French cafe, we're in the Royal Festival Hall, but it sounds like we're in a, a, a French cafe beside a swimming pool. You know, nice. Dave, you should, you should be saying we are in a swimming pool, right. we're the French cafe. Well, I like to be you transparent know. about uh, the process. This is, like, the thing like about, yeah. this is the thing about radio and podcasts is that you could be anywhere. Right, that is true. So you could make it up. Yeah, no, that is true. I, I mean, and I, I do do a lot of stuff that's making up, but I, I feel like this show is really about capturing a moment. Why museums? Why did you come to, to do these many things to do with museums? Um, by accident. So my first two degrees were in physics. I decided I hated physics. In fact, I'd started a PhD, decided it was so horrendous that I quit. And wasn't sure for a while what I wanted to do but I was living in Bristol at the time and walked past Bristol City Museum and it it was literally a light bulb moment it was I just looked at the museum and thought I want to do that I want to go and work in a museum and that was it first I thought I wanted to work in museum education I have no idea why I really don't like children Um, (laughs) but I think that's probably because that was I didn't know what museum jobs were available and that was one that I knew about but I decided to do a master's degree not in museum studies I didn't actually know that existed as a subject so I did a master's at Imperial College in science communication for the sole reason that the guy who ran the course at the time was John Durant and was 
Deputy Director of the Science Museum. And I figured somewhere in my head the line of argument went, well, if I do this degree, I'll get a job at the Science Museum, which was ridiculously naive, but actually turned out to be the case. Right. Um, and at the time, this course had three months... It's, it's a course that still exists, and it's a course that I taught on for a long time, but it was very, very different when I did it, and it had three-month work placements. So I actually had a three-month work placement at the Science Museum developing the initial content for the Welcome Wing, which was an amazing thing to be, yeah. to be doing, and moved from that straight into, straight into a, a job there, well, a series of short-term contracts, and got very interested in the design. So I was working quite closely with exhibition designers I was producing ideas to go into the exhibition and they would be saying well we'd lay it out like this and this is what it will look like and I got quite interested in that and went to work with exhibition design companies in-house as a content developer so a client would come along a museum or a science centre and say we've got this space and we want an exhibition on X help Right. and I would develop the concept and the content and work with the designers to turn that into something three-dimensional. And that was a really steep learning curve. That was amazing. I remember turning up on my first day. Didn't, I had a desk. I didn't have a computer. And at this point, I'd worked on three exhibitions at the Science Museum. I thought I knew everything there was to make to, about exhibition making. And this person comes along and puts this big, thick document on the desk and said, this is an exhibition that we worked on for you know, this institute and now it's going to go to Japan and Manchester and it needs to be completely redeveloped. This document contains all the exhibits. Here's two plans for the, for the spaces in, in Japan and Manchester. Plants coming in tomorrow. Can you completely redevelop the exhibition to fit in these two spaces at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning? Wow. And then their parting shot was scheme designs going out on Friday. And I just thought, I'm not going to tell them I don't know what scheme design is. <laughs> I don't. So, yeah, that was a really steep learning curve. Right. But brilliant fun. I loved it. It was, it was a real buzz. And I worked there for a couple of years and then went freelance to get an idea of what other design companies were like because each design company has its own signature, its own style, its own way of doing things and I thought it would be interesting to see what other companies were like. So I did that, got a fellowship from NESTA, the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts to think about new ways of developing science exhibitions and that's what introduced me to the, the topic of museum studies I've never heard of it before but the Nesta Fellowship was quite interesting it's like here's some money for three years bye get on with it okay so I needed something to sort of keep my feet on the ground I did a lot of travelling looking at exhibitions because I had a a travel budget as part of the the fellowship there was a a reading group in the the Centre for Museology at Manchester and it it convened every couple of months and it was here's a, a topic and here's a couple of papers read these, come along, discuss them. And that's how I discovered museum studies. And in fact, after the fellowship, I figured that I wanted to take that further. And that was the start of my PhD. And so I applied to Manchester because I'd already met the people there. So that's they sort of, it's segued. Right. So I finished that in 2011, and the rest is history. Right. <laughs> so when that light bulb moment happened, like what was it that, that made you go, wow, made you go, this is what I want to do? I think... So when I, was, when I was at school, I was equally interested in science and humanities. 
in fact, I wanted to do, I knew that I wanted to do double maths, so maths and further maths, and I really liked chemistry, but I also wanted to do history and art at A-level. And I was told, you just can't do that. You can either do humanities or you can do science because you just can't get, you would, you know university will take you. I mean, this is sort of mid-80s, so there might have been some truth to it at that, at that point. But I'd always gone to museums. You know, my mum had taken me to museums from a very, very early age. You know, we'd gone as kids and done quizzes in the holidays and, and things like that. I remember Tate used to have a really excellent children's trail, which really made you look at the paintings. And it was fantastic and I always really enjoyed it. So I think it's always there in the back of my head as something that I enjoyed doing, as well as the sort of interest in humanities and arts and visual culture more generally, but something that had been, I guess, not suppressed in a way through through having to make a choice about, at A-level, about what it was that I wanted to do. And when I was at, when I was an undergraduate, I actually spent more of my time stage managing plays than I did probably going to lectures. So there's always been that sort of streak Right. A more sort of creative streak in me. Yeah, um, that's a kind of producer slash curatorial, curatorial. I can never say that mm-hmm. word. Role that you were taking on when you're when you're producing plays. It's in that. It's in that yeah. wheelhouse. Both yeah, stage managing. Right. Which was, um, and it was fun. I really liked it. I was the arty scientist. I was the one that you know. <laughs> Rachel's a bit arty instead of being really geeky which kind of made a change as well because when I was at school I went to a very sort of arts oriented school so I was the geeky scientist so it kind of went from one from one thing to another yeah so that was it so the you know probably the light bulb moment had probably always been there at the back of the head but just sort of at that moment popped up at that point you'd done two two degrees in mm. physics and you didn't like I mean that's a lot of degrees to do in a subject but you've decided <laughs> no, that you didn't like yeah right? I mean that's a little bit unfair I mean I loved my undergraduate studies it was very conceptual I loved the ideas the ideas were great and I liked the maths I liked that in a sort of slightly brain achy kind of way that you have to think about something really hard because you're being you're being pushed to think about new ideas so the conceptual part of it, I found, I found easy and really interesting and I really liked, which is why I thought that I wanted to continue studying. But the reality of actually doing a lab-based physics was something completely different. It was dull. I mean, there's right. nothing about okay. undergraduate science, even undergraduate lab work, that prepares you for the tedium of lab work. But also the sexism was just shockingly right. awful. I mean really kind of astonishingly astonishingly high levels I remember picking something up in a laboratory one day just as a piece of routine maintenance and a senior lecturer fairly young senior lecturer walking in and looking at me and said oh I didn't think women could do that you know it's sort of that and that's kind of that was sort of fairly normal that kind of remark and being wolf whistled at and having your appearance commented on and to, you know, people just actually not thinking you're any good because you're a, a woman. Right. And it was all pervasive. And I, that, together with just not enjoying it as a subject anymore. If you're finding the days boring and, and, and <laughs> yeah. full of sexism, yeah. that's a, yeah. it's, it's not something you want to stick out. It's definitely not a winning combination. Yeah. I mean, but it's, but it's, 
you know, it, it's frustrating that people are pushed out. I mean, it sounds like, in a way, for you, maybe this was always a, the right thing for you to, to move away from science. Yeah, but it's very frustrating so. that a lot of people do get pushed out of that because of those kind of experiences rather than get welcomed into the communities. Yeah, I get I mean, I can, I mean, I'm talking about my experience. Maybe it's changing. Maybe more women are being welcomed into science, but it doesn't seem to be particularly different these days from what I hear. I, I don't know. This is kind of completely out of touch right. with it. You've worked in within museums for a long time. Mm. What sort of things have you learned, I guess, about museums from that? Like, what would you say makes a good exhibition? Or, you know, are there any kind of general things that you can pick out? Oh, blimey. <laughs> <laughs> um... What makes a good exhibition? I don't know, and I don't know that there is there is an answer to that because obviously what I think is a good exhibition is not what someone else would think is a yeah, good exhibition. Sure. It's you know that's very subjective. One thing I have learned is no one will ever go to an exhibition with me. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just look at them in a completely different way. I think don't think it's fun times for anyone. Um, uh, gosh. Hmm, okay, I'm stumped. I might have to think I might have to think about that and come back to it a bit later. I mean, I guess the, the often the easier way of answering that kind of question is what makes a bad museum, a, a bad exhibition, what are the things that people that turn people off? I think there's a there's a long I mean there's a long list. I mean from my perspective I mean it can be things about making assumptions about your audience, making assumptions about your contents and not not researching your subject thoroughly being very dogmatic in your view which can be fine as long as you acknowledge it I mean there's a I suppose that's actually quite an unfair comment there's a kind of dilemma for for, for, I think many museums feel that they have a dilemma about being with sites of established knowledge we have to be quote unquote neutral which is an impossibility. So there's issues that I've seen arise time and time again about being balanced. Uh, and exhibitions are, in a, in a sense, they're a form of journalism, but they're kind of sanctioned journalism. You know, we, we go to museums, we see them as sites of authority. And I often ask students, you know, have you ever been to an exhibition and argued with it? <laughs> and... And they go, no, we just go to an exhibition and we sort of take it in and we absorb it. And I say, have you ever watched a documentary film and found yourself shouting at the TV? And they'll go, yes. And say, OK, well, what's the difference? Because exhibitions are in, in many ways like documentaries. They're taking objects that would never normally have been in the same place at the same time and bringing them together under the guise of a narrative, a sort of a voiceover, an unspoken voiceover, but it's there uh, nonetheless, and creating something cogent out of them. So that way it's, it's very much like documentary filmmaking. So there's all kinds of sort of editorial decisions that, that go on in that. But this idea that there's a, a balance is very difficult. So if you've got a subject that you know, you know there'll be multiple viewpoints on it, how do you cope with that? And a lot of museums will sort of think, well, we can't, so either we won't do that subject or we'll try and, I'm thinking about science museums in particular, we'll just talk about the facts in quotes. Right. We'll leave the issues in quotes aside or 
will deal with it in a box poppy kind of way. You know, right. write your answer here. But facts and issues uh, are quite hard to separate. They are very hard to separate, and it's a bit naive. I think that does an injustice to visitors, but also to the museums themselves. When I was saying earlier about you know being dogmatic, actually, some I feel sometimes museums should say, actually, this is what we think. We're taking a stand. This is our opinion. Being really upfront about it. This is this is what we think about the subject. Right. But of course, wrapped up in that are questions of the museum's identity. How do you see yourself? What are you? What are you about as an organisation? Are you about you know up to date science? Are you about history of design and you just want to put you know nice things on display but not necessarily think about their context or any of the the sort of historical or cultural background but what you're doing is showing them as examples of display what was your original question again (laughs) well i mean i'm sorry i'm just it's a very really it's a really difficult it's a really difficult topic i'm not doing a very good job of explaining it no i mean i think it, you know I, th- I think you are actually doing, <laughs> doing a very good job of, of explaining it. otherwise i would sort of like be saying like i'm saying more i'm like fascinated by what you're saying i mean i guess the thing with with a museum and a, or an exhibition is that you can you you know, I know I know myself from having gone to museums, which I, I love museums. Mm. Um, but then sometimes you can have the most boring experience in a museum mm. ever, and it's it's all to do with just like choices that that somebody else makes. And I, I I'm not as familiar with this art form, I guess, or this. It's not always an art form. It's also uh, it's also like you say a, a piece of journalism. But, yeah. But but I'm not so familiar with how it's constructed. I'm, I'm when I walk into them, I'm more likely to go. Or I really enjoyed that, or that was boring. Yeah. But I, I don't have the kind of way of like framing it. So how much. it's how it's constructed is fascinating, because a museum was sort of cut, and I'm talking about. So there's, I'm using the, the term exhibition very broadly. So there's essentially two types of exhibitions that you'll see in a museum. One is the display of permanent collections, right. so the objects that are actually owned by the museum. And the other one are temporary exhibitions, which will be sometimes just the objects owned by the exhibition, but oftentimes, particularly with blockbuster exhibitions, there'll be sort of big loans, you know, international loans, and it'll be gathering those objects together to tell a, a story or to tell a point of view, for the, often for the first time or in this, in this way. And they take ages, you know, they can take five years to put together. Actually, and so can permanent collections, you know, permanent collections take a, a long time to put together as well. I mean, the, the scale of development for an exhibition is huge. So you've got this space, and you know you're going to put something together, and it's, there's questions about who are we as a museum? You know what? What is this museum about? What's our identity? What do? How do? Um, how do we want to represent ourselves within here? Um, do we have a way of doing things? And what is that? Who are we going to get to pay for this? Right. And what kind of thing might they want to see? And that you know that's influential as well. Who are our visitors? Do we want to attract anyone new? And how might we go about doing that? And so how do we want to frame the subject? How are we going to talk about it? How is this subject currently thought about and currently discussed within the subjects, you know, the subject specialisms that we, we know about? You know, what does history of art have to say about this? What does science and science studies have to say about that? So how is it talked about? What's the sort of general discourse around this subject? And that sort of frames the way in which you might talk about a subject and also frames the angle that a museum is going to take within the exhibition. It's not just, 
let's put on an exhibition about Chinese pottery. It's what are we going to say about Chinese pottery? What's, what's the way in which we're going to frame that? And then from there, you've also got what's, what can we say about it? What's in our collection? What objects, you know, if we're going to borrow objects from, another, from other museums... Who will lend us some things and what will they lend us? Right. So there's what actually it's feasible to say, where are we going to put this on? What kind of room is it going to be in or, or what series of rooms? Because the way that an exhibition is, the space is configured has quite an influence on how you move around as a, as a visitor right. uh, and what you see. So if you imagine, I mean, I've made this analogy with documentary films, but if you, two people, you give two people a... DVD with a film on you say go away watch the first 10 minutes and when you come back say what did you see and they'll tell you pretty much the same thing that happened if you send two people into an exhibition and say spend 10 minutes in here what did you see then you might see something very different depending on which way around the rooms you went or even within one room someone might turn left someone else might go right to the end of the room and then walk backwards how much time so so the amount of time that you've spent watching it is irrelevant. It's it's the order in, in which you've seen right. things and other people, I guess. Well. And other people. Yeah, if there's a very people, big yeah. crowd, or if there's a, a really interesting object looking over there, you might make a beeline for that thing, but miss all the stuff on the other wall. Actually, the the space and the way you lay objects out, the actual design is is really important, and that goes with the visual language as well, the the lighting, the colour the juxtapositions between different objects, all paint a picture. And, of course, visual language is, is a language in itself. And it's, you know, do you understand that visual language and who, what, what impression does it give? When you walk into the room of an exhibition and you kind of look around, you'll gain an impression of the mood of the exhibition or what kind of thing you're seeing or how it is that perhaps you should respond. And that, of course, will be determined by how you interpret you know the the level of the lighting and the arrangement and the colour and and so forth based on your prior experience. So that's again, it's it's exactly a linguistic construct. It's incredibly complex, and they're brought together. So what you what a, a bunch of exhibition designers or an exhibition team think they're going to do might not turn out to be what actually you know is presented. Because right. you've also got this huge you know transient team of different level expertise curators, internal curators people that actually work for the museum but external subject experts engineers, architects, designers conservators joke museums is conservators say no to everything but they're really powerful you know maybe you wanted this amazing sculpture but your exhibition's on the second floor and the engineers say no because the floor loading's no good right you know that that will change what goes in your exhibition if you're going to have interactives the people who are manufacturing them or designing them or commissioning them so all of this you know right down to the person who photographs the objects or is developing the drawings so it's this incredible team of people all of whom have an impact on the exhibition in some way or another. There's a book called Behind the Scenes at the Science Museum written by a woman called Sharon MacDonald she did an ethnographic study where she was a sort of participant observer watching this exhibition called Food for Thought which is at the Science Museum being developed and in the chapter where there's one chapter where the exhibition's opened and the two of the lead curators walk in and they go oh, didn't think it was going to look like this oh, this isn't what I expected and you read it and you think, but hold on a minute, 
you've worked on the exhibition right from the beginning. How did you not know that this is how it's going to turn out? And of course, the reason is that it's difficult to keep in your mind how these all these sort of small incremental changes are the impact that they're all having as you as you go along and suddenly you're presented with the, the final object and it's kind of not what you thought it was. Right. <laughs> um. I mean, that makes sense to me as someone... I've, like, I've written plays and stuff and mm. it sounds like it's a very kind of... It's a similar process. Like, you go to see the play and the lines mm. work in a very different way than you ever yeah. imagined just because it's collaborative. You said you travelled around a lot of places mm. looking at exhibitions, I guess, yeah. to a certain extent. I mean, what, what kind of... What, what did that teach you about exhibition like, and museum spaces? Like... Is there cultural differences? Is there cultural preferences? Um, actually, interestingly, no, I don't think there are. I was teaching in Copenhagen a few years ago. I was teaching a course on exhibition making for Danish museum professionals. And the organisation that invited me over said, have you ever been to Denmark before? And I said, no, it might be quite a good idea to come and have a look at some of the museums so that I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying anything absolutely ridiculous so they flew me to Copenhagen for three days I had just spent three days going around museums I got very sore feet but it's absolutely amazing and there's loads of great museums in Copenhagen and I think I'd gone with the impression that maybe I was going to see Danish exhibitions but no I mean they they they, on the surface they looked like exhibitions that could have been produced in the UK or the US but I suspect that the process of development was very different because the way that the, the sort of the, the structures within the museums, the organisational structures are, are quite different. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's... I could imagine all of those being in some differences. I mean, the Museum of Copenhagen looks very different from the Museum of London. It's telling, a different, it's telling different stories. There were some things that I thought were really... They did a, a great exhibition about Kierkegaard because it was his actually this was last year it was the 200th anniversary of his death but it was an, it was a Kierkegaard anniversary and I can't remember which one and visitors could bring objects that they felt responded to some of his words that they had put through the exhibition and the museum would then accession these objects and, and bring them into their collection and I thought that was brilliant and I haven't seen anything like that in the UK so I, th- I suppose there are differences I retract my previous statements <laughs> there are differences but they're on that kind of small level rather than if you go into a museum will you see something that it's totally that is unrecognisable right, right. Yeah. yeah it's still going to be it's still going to be things in cases with yeah, some text right. and some lighting and you know different colours on the walls right. the general feel is the same but it's the sort of the micro level it's the details and also the idea of accessioning objects in that way is an is an individual is is an institutional decision and probably an individual curator making that kind of decision right what have been the exhibitions that you've been involved in or not involved in that you've come to that you've seen that you've really really enjoyed what are your sort of standout ones that you Um, Anything at the Louisiana Museum of Art at Copenhagen, which is incredible. I mean, the whole site is amazing. It's just outside. It's actually it's not in Copenhagen. It's just outside Copenhagen. And it's a museum and sculpture garden set right on the coast. You can actually see Sweden from the, on a good day. That has an amazing... You could just spend all... I could spend all day there. The incredible sculptures in the gardens. But it does really interesting, thoughtful 
provocative sometimes exhibitions on big topics like the Arctic. It's got one at the moment about Africa, a whole continent of Africa, but it's I, I, I didn't see it when I was there. But evidently, you know, a really interesting critique of sort of Western views of, you know, Western assumptions about Africa as a continent and, and individual countries. So quite political in some ways. And it's over, it's, it's probably half the museum. So that's, that's quite a big thing to do. And similarly, the one on the Arctic was slightly bonkers, but really, really interesting and thought-provoking. And I think, I think, I think that's, yeah, it's, it, it strikes me as being a museum that isn't afraid to stick its neck out. Right. In my in my view, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen anything like it in the UK. Right. So that's that's one. I, I, someone asked me what's my favourite museum, and I think it would have to be the Louisiana. Other exhibitions that I would like to have been involved in. Okay, I have to have a think. There might be a long pause now. That's fine. <laughs> They're very easy to cut. Out <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh. So the Manchester Museum is really good at testing out theoretical ideas, so ideas from museology in its exhibitions, right. or just sort of pointing, just provoke again being a little bit provocative. So it it surveyed its visitors about displaying mummies and whether this was sort of disrespectful which I think is really interesting. interesting. A few years ago there was, in its natural history galleries, it covered up all of the male specimens, leaving just the female specimens on display, making the point that actually most of the specimens on display were male, and and asking people, well, this is what we're saying, this is what we've done, what do you think? Um, And that's really interesting, and I like that kind of... Again, it's it's thought provoking, but it's taking from academic research about museums and collecting, and sort of putting it into practice. Yeah. And I like that, and I think that's that's really what for me what university museums should be about, as sites of experimentation and sites of of you know bringing that oftentimes behind the scenes research and and making it public. Because, you know, research about museums is about public institutions so it should really sort of come forward and and be a matter of more public debate right and and where do you stand on sort of interactivity in in these kind of areas because i mean you see a lot of interactivity happening in museums now and it sometimes feels forced it sometimes feels amazing from my point of view yeah you're right and i think it depends on why you're doing it I wouldn't say all interactives right. are bad no, you know that's yeah. a ridiculous Blanket position yeah. Ridiculous, yeah it's kind of got an interesting history the history in my mind is interactivity got imported into the UK from the US in science centres in sort of mid 1980s 1984 was Explore at Bristol and it was a temporary exhibition for a while and 1986 was the opening of Launchpad which was the first permanent interactive gallery in the UK right and that really is was and still is interactive in sort of the hands-on way of 
let's build a bridge, let's, you know, there's an Archimedes yeah. screw with sand. My niece and, loves you, it. You know. I mean, yeah. it's a brilliant um, place to take children. And it's sort of fun. But, and it came, it, it came from the experimentarium in San Francisco, which had opened in the late 60s with the idea that if you wanted people to be more enthusiastic about science or to understand science better, let's make them scientists. So we'll give them lots of experiments to do and they can pretend to be scientists a bit and then they'll get a feel for what science is. And I remember going to Bristol when it was Explore at Bristol, when it had become a permanent exhibition sort of next to the permanent centre next to the train station. And there were two oscilloscopes and their output was projected on a screen and you could turn the dials and make sort of pretty pictures. And the idea behind this was that you were supposed to understand constructive and destructive interference of waves by twiddling the dials, and people didn't, of course. You go to lectures for that, that takes quite a long time to explain. Actually, what people did was twiddle the dials and saw some pretty pictures. But also in the mid-80s, the Bodmer Report came out, brought on public understanding of science, which was kind of the science... The public don't understand or appreciate science... Let's give them lots of facts and information and then they'll come to love it. Museums were kind of co-opted into that. But at the same time, it had to, there was a feeling that science was dull and boring. It has to be fun. And what better way to make it fun than to have things to do and interactives. And so there became a, a craze within science museums for lots of interactivity. Everything had to have an interactive in it in some ways, whether that was a lift-the-flap thing or a pushing the buttons or a game-type thing or a computer quiz but almost in a sort of slightly unthinking way so really over overdoing it mm. and for me there are some science museums and some science centers that are still a bit like that it's everything has to be interactive even if it's actually not it's not necessary i think the science museum's quite interesting in that a lot of it's new newer exhibitions are moving away from that and becoming more object-oriented. That's actually quite a new move. And if you look at exhibitions in other kinds of museums, non-science museums, I feel they've integrated interactivity in a much more cogent way, where it's, it's there if it's useful and it supports the ideas of the exhibitions, but it's not there just for the sake of being right. there. Plus this idea of interactivity is actually it's a sort of a catch-all phrase and it's generally taken to mean anything that's not an object in the case. Conventionally, an interactive was something where there are multiple inputs and multiple outputs. So the exhibit responds depending on what the operator does with it. Right. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. As opposed to something where you touch something or you feel something or you lift a flap to gain an answer which is more of a kind of hands-on exhibit so yeah, right. do you see there's a slight distinction there but actually all of those are valid kind of things like there's a, an exhibit in the Viennese British galleries they've got a case full of different kinds of pottery and they're little fragments of pottery on a, on a rail in front of it and you can just feel the different types so instead of just looking at it it kind of looks all the same by touching it you can feel the thickness or the difference in the glazes or the way that the patterns are raised or not so you just get a much more in-depth appreciation of what it is they're trying to show you than just looking at something in a case so that's a really interesting and useful I think comparison you said there earlier on that you're the people people don't necessarily like going to to going to an exhibition with you 
Um, but I mean, and you've worked on so many exhibitions. Do you still enjoy going to exhibitions yourself? Um, huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think I find it hard to go to the exhibition for the exhibition. I think there's always part of me that's looking around going, hmm, they put that there, and oh, I'm really not sure about this lighting here. So there are some where the subject captivates me, and I find that really interesting. And I actually, it's slightly unfair saying no one goes to exhibitions with me. They do. That's very useful for me, because it slows me down, and it stops me thinking, I don't know why they put those lights up there, and hmm... Not sure. It's a bit crowded. I wouldn't have put that door through there. I would have put it over here. Or wow, look at the way they put the light. I actually did go to an exhibition with my mum. In fact, it was the exhibition on colour at the National Gallery, which was fantastic. It was a brilliant exhibition. I mean, really interesting. But they had introductory panels in each room, which they'd managed to light in some way, where the edges had been become lit to sort of reflect the colour that that particular room of the exhibition was talking about. And I did spend about five minutes going, oh, I wonder how they did that. Where's the light source coming from? Oh, how, does that, how does this work? Which is very boring and geeky of me, but <laughs> there you go. I don't think that's boring and geeky, though. I'm the same when I go to a play or the, yeah. know, watch anything. It's like I, I find it very hard to turn off the side of me that's thinking like that. Yeah, uh, and the, the times when I can, they're the great times. Like you know, if if something captures me enough that I forget that I forget to analyse it, yeah. then I know that it's a good thing. So I mean, that makes sense that you would have that kind of re- relationship to a certain extent with exhibitions. I also relate to the idea of when you're with someone else because they're enjoying it kind yeah. of innocently. You can then get in, in into it in that way. Yeah. yeah. So I was thinking I was in Copenhagen last week. And the one museum that I went to was one that I'd never heard of before, but just looked slightly crazy. I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name properly. It's a, it's, it's a, a museum dedicated to the work of a particular Danish sculpture, a 19th century Danish sculpture. And it's slightly bonkers. And I, I, I didn't actually know it was a museum. I just came across the building and it is such an unusual looking building. And I noticed that on the outside there's a frieze of... Sort of like a, two-storey high freeze or one-storey high freeze murals paintings I suppose of works being you know ships docking in Copenhagen and works of arts big sculptures being taken off them and carried and it starts on one side of the building it goes all the way around and it ends up at the entrance door to the to the building to the museum where you go in and I was like what is this and it's a building dedicated to the works of this sculptor and he bequeathed his collection of sculptures, all his own work, to the Danish nation on his return from Italy. So this is about his work arriving. It, but the museum was built within his lifetime. But it looks like a mausoleum and it turns out it is a mausoleum because his tomb is in the centre of, wow. of the thing. And it's crazy. I mean, it is just... It's just a bit weird. <laughs> it's, I mean, in, a, in that sort of fascinating... Right. Really? You you did this? You did all these works? So you've decided to display... Or someone has decided to display them like this with amazing paintings on the ceiling. But again, very varied, sort of not consistent in any way. And really a bit nuts. And I, I've realised that I'm kind of... It, but it's just utterly fascinating. Right. And that, I find that interesting 
just that it exists and that people still go there, but it's not very well advertised. There were quite a few people there when I was when I was walking around, and that it sort of sustained itself. I, I'd love to know how. Yeah. It was just I just found that. I find that kind of thing much more interesting than going to the National Museum. And it comes down to, I suppose, what I was talking to you about earlier, is like, why, why this, why in this way? Right. Well, there's um, a story about how that whole building exists within mm, it as well. Yeah, like, that's, that's that it was commissioned, but it's... Part yeah, it, yeah, and it's in a really... You know, it's in a quite a prominent place, but it's also quite easy to walk past. So how did the museum show uh, come about? I went to the first gig, which had been produced by Steve Cross. So he had been running Science Show for about a year and decided to branch out into museums. And he did the first gig, and I went along and thought this was a really great idea with huge amounts of potential just for getting people in museums to talk to each other, which they don't. Quite siloed. It's very siloed, both within sort of different, between different types of museums, different roles within museums and allied professions don't really talk to each other and there's not really a forum for creating that. And Steve had kind of exhausted his, in one gig, his sort of knowledge of museum professionals and asked me if I would produce it, which I was very happy to do for exactly that reason. So my role has been getting people to come along, getting people to take part, explaining to a sometimes sceptical museum's audience why it is that this is a, a good thing to take part in and what the advantages of it are. I think sometimes people are really nervous about wanting to take part because they're not quite sure what it is, but once they do it, they talk, tell all their friends, and that's been great. So it's, it's that. It is the role of a creative producer. Who do I want to reach out for? Who have we not heard yet? Using my connections and forging new connections to try and bring all these different parts of the museum's world in its sort of broadest sense together and sharing stage and sharing ideas and hopefully forging new partnerships and connections. Since May 2012 I've been involved. The first one was in April 2012. Yeah, and it's a, it, it, is, it, is it happening monthly or is it...? It's happening, it happens every two months. That's right. And I think that's just about sustainable. I mean, museums... Yeah community or set of communities is very very much smaller than science which is huge so there's this sort of a smaller pool of people to to draw on but I in the same way I'm very clear that I want a real range of people so you know lucky we've had everyone you know from volunteers and museum study students to the chief executive of the Heritage Lottery Fund and museum directors. So there's this big span of, of different kinds of people coming and talking about whatever they want to talk about about museums in any way that they like, which is the whole point. It's really struck a chord. So we've, we've been all around the country, but we've also got international franchises yeah. in Rio, uh, Rio de Janeiro and Buenos Aires and... There was one in Boston, I don't know if it's still going, and Toronto, and recently had an inquiry that someone who was thinking of setting one up in Paris, Copenhagen wants one. So it's obviously something that museum people have really latched onto, an idea that they've really latched onto and think is a, a good idea. Um, and sort of allied to that is, well, we've used museums show-off also to sort of discuss other issues like 
the lot of early career museums professionals, which came about from a, a blog post that I wrote for London Museums Group on exactly that. There had been a lot of discussion within museums about, you know, there's a lot of hand-waving about, oh, isn't it terrible, Museum, early career museums professionals have a terrible time, you know, and there's nothing we can do about it, which is always... I was very conscious that it was always senior professionals who were making these comments and that no one had ever really asked early careers museum professionals, actually, how is it for you and have you got any ideas? And it turns out it's shit, as everyone, which is hardly surprising. I mean, I think everyone knew that. And yes, they have got lots of ideas about how things could change. So that was the blog post and out of that came the, the conference for the future of museums, which has proved to be incredibly successful and all the participants jointly wrote a manifesto for the future of museums, wow. which we published. Um, it's had 600 downloads in the UK and internationally as well. And it's been read by deputy directors of, na- of national museums. It's been sent to boards of trustees. And, and we were asked by Arts Council England to do some follow-up events so now the question is, what, what you know? What do we do next um, to continue that work? But that's all under the museums show off banner. That's that's the the springboard that we have to to yeah. launch that kind of work. That's really that's really exciting. I didn't I, I hadn't heard about that element mm. of museum show off before. And that's really that's really good. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a good blueprint to do for lots of different uh, industries or like workplaces and. Yeah, and, and it's a big... I mean, one of the, the key issues that came out of that... I mean, it was, it was really interesting what people chose to talk about at the conference. Um, obviously, workforce diversity and sustainability was one of them, but also things about finance and collections with the great provocation, we should just burn it all, you know, and, and sustainable collecting is a really big issue for museums. You know, what do you do with all of this stuff? <coughs> Only about 5% of it is on display in many museums, right. but it has to be stored somewhere and maintained and how do you decide what you're going to collect for the future and, and then when you do collect it, where do you put it? So, so provocation, yeah, that we should just burn it all and start again. So was well, it certainly got people talking and questions about you know hierarchies within within museums. Front of house is often looked down on by others, but is actually you know it's an essential part. It really? connects the back end of the museum with with your visitors. So front of house people are are essential. But it's often considered as a sort of a dead end. If you if you start out in in front of a house, you'll never you know you'll never progress, which is kind of rubbish. So lots lots of views on on working practices and working structures within within museums. The question of diversity is is being taken up a lot, and there's a lot a bunch of sociologists very very interested in that cross cultural organisations. In fact, I'm talking at the first working group on the sociology of arts and culture which is being sponsored by the British Sociological Association and its inaugural meeting is in September and I've been asked to go and talk about this work, the future of museums work and early career museum professionals as part of that. It's really exciting. It's really exciting, slightly nerve-wracking. Yeah. <laughs> they did make it clear, we're asking some people who are not sociologists, like, 
okay, that's fine. I find sociologists slightly nerve-wracking, but all right. <laughs> it's really taken off. Yeah. It's been, it's been incredibly successful. Yeah, I mean, I I, it has. I'm, I'm, the funny thing of it is I've never managed... I've been invited to so many of them. I've never <laughs> managed to actually go to a proper museum show. Um, but I've only ever heard really excellent things from anybody who's been. Museum show-off as well, it's like... It seems like an extension of a lot of the other things that you do because it's like it's 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 communication, right? Yeah, it all fits together. Yeah. Well, as I said at the start, I've got these sort of multiple museum-related hats, but actually, they you know, in in some way, they're all they're all interconnected. Well, it's museums that's the interconnection. So it's it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you today. Thank and you. The, the last question that I ask everybody is: Do you have anything to plug? Museums show off. Yeah. <laughs> Our next gig is on the 29th of September. Um, we will be oh, opening up, sign up, so if anyone wants to take part and do a set for us, uh, nine minutes to show off anything you like about museums in any format, that will be opening in probably next week, the week after. So this will probably go um, out now, it'll go out at the beginning of September. Right, okay. September. Well, so, yeah, it'll probably be closed by then. By then. Yeah, that's the okay, well in that case, come along. Yeah, do. 29th of September at Slaughtered Lamb. Five pounds buy your tickets in advance and go to museumsshowoff.org for further information or follow us on Twitter at Museums Show Off. Brilliant. Um, and the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Bye! <laughs> Bye everyone. So I've just returned from three weeks doing both my solo show and my other show, Stand Up Tragedy, at the Edinburgh Festival. The responses that I got to my solo show were amazing and the hours of tragedy that we produced every night on the stand-up tragedy stage were some of our best, most moving, funniest shows ever. You can hear the stand-up tragedy shows on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts go to hang out on the internet. If you enjoyed the last three episodes of Getting Better Acquainted, which were recorded at the Edinburgh Festival, all three of those hosts also hosted hours of tragedy at the Edinburgh Fringe. So listen back to them, have a listen, and if you like them, share them, tell people about them. It was creatively fulfilling in Edinburgh, really an amazing time, but financially and occasionally audience-wise, we didn't do as well as we'd hoped. And it, the great thing about those shows being podcast is that they can reach the audiences that they deserve to reach. Also, my solo show, What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity, is not over. It's just the run in Edinburgh has finished. I am going to be developing it, doing it in other places. You can find more about the show and you can find the survey of a thousand anonymous men's thoughts on masculinity, patriarchy, what it is to be a man over at www.manspainingmasculinity.co.uk. And if you enjoy this show and you think that those other projects are really good too, please consider donating. You can donate at solo shows website you can donate at the stand-up tragedy website i do a lot of stuff and i release it for free it'd be great if i could make more money from the stuff that i make for you guys and for myself rather than the stuff that i make for other people because then i'll be able to do it better and i'll be able to focus on it more so please if you can if you like this show and you want to support me making free stuff for people please consider donating